Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Today's episode number 81 features an interview with Robert Cheek. When Robert was a skinny, scrawny 15-year-old kid, he became a vegan. And he knew that he wanted to write and teach and spread the message of vegan living. And so he figured the best way to do it was to become a bodybuilder. Again, skinny, scrawny kid decides he's going to bulk up, he's going to shred himself, he's going to build muscle, and he is going to travel around the world showing that you can be vegan and be a bodybuilder and be an athlete and be strong. This was quite a while ago. And so the story doesn't sound necessarily as strange today as it did when Robert got started. If you think about it, you know, how much has changed in the last 15 years from everybody having a cell phone to Facebook to YouTube? We don't even think about what life was like before these things. And before there were hundreds and hundreds of plant based athletes running around winning tournaments, winning trophies, uh, setting NFL records, winning Wimbledon matches. Nobody really knew whether this was even possible. And Robert Cheek decided to find out. And his story is what we're going to cover on today's show. So without further ado, Robert Cheek, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited. I've been, I've been going through Shred It. And I've got to say, this, this has been a challenging book for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's a, I have, I'm really good at justifications, rationalizations, and wiggle room. And you're not kind of into that so much in terms of people getting results in their lives. Yeah, I'm not such a big fan of uh, just giving ourselves a pat on the back for uh, trying a little bit. You know, I don't think that's how you achieve New, Year, New Year's resolutions or how you achieve goals or how you stick with something or how you actually make real tangible results happen. So I'm a little bit rough around the edges when it comes to that, but that's because I know what it takes to achieve something that's really meaningful and outstanding in the areas of health and fitness, specifically fitness. And so that's kind of the style that I take with the book. Right. Right. So, so today we're going to talk about a topic that, uh, you know, nobody cares about lo- losing body fat and looking good. So, yeah, nobody cares about that. So, so I casually so, mentioned it in the book. Yeah. So um, but, but before, you know, before we get to the specifics of and the book is called Shred It and it's just out and I have a copy in front of me and it's it's gorgeous. Um, it's you know, it's it's a great excuse for looking at really, really beautiful bodies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, you know, and when my wife comes by, I'll just quickly switch to the recipes. But uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your your background and, uh, you know, where, where you came from for folks who, who don't know you or are meeting you for the first time. So you're, you're very different from almost everyone I've interviewed in that your transformation started well after you became a vegan. So I'm I'm, yeah. I'm curious about that. When when did you first become a vegan and why? Well, ironic and appropriate timing. Uh, yesterday began my 20th year on a vegan lifestyle. So I started back in uh, 1995, December 8th, 1995, at age 15, and so full 19 years now living a vegan lifestyle. And I was a skinny, scrawny farm kid. You know, my my parents met in the animal science department at Oregon State University. My father was a professor of animal agriculture, author of 15 textbooks, teaching college students how to raise animals for food. He just retired a year or two ago after 30 years of teaching that subject. Uh, my Both my parents come from farming backgrounds. I grew up on a farm myself. I was in 4-H program raising animals for food, raising dairy cows, uh, rabbits, chickens, uh, guinea pigs, small animals, uh, and some large animals, like like I mentioned, the dairy calves. So, you, you know, I was a farm kid, and it, it wasn't until 1995 that I just started looking at animals differently. I grew up with many farm animals having first names, just like a dog or a cat, and having these, these close relationships with them and uh, treating them as friends. And then I, I just, it took a little bit of time to really make the connection that uh, when it was all said and done at the end of the, the county fair and I sold the animals at the auction, 
uh, I realized they weren't going necessarily to a happy place and they were likely being turned into food or uh, some other outcome that wasn't nearly as pleasant as they had with me. So with that realization, I decided to become a compassionate vegan individual at age 15 and bodybuilding came quite a bit later. So, so I'm trying to picture this, a, a scrawny kid growing up in the, in the midst of animal agriculture, telling your folks, I'm now a vegan. Like, how did you even know that that was a thing? Well, you know, luckily I had some good role models. I had, or I have a wonderful older sister and she's the one that decided to become vegan first. And it, it came about in some really neat ways. For example, something that was really meaningful and powerful to me we used to raise chickens, um, and uh, you know they're, they're typically con- considered uh, broiler hens, you know, in, in common, uh, you know, lay terms, I guess. And so, anyway, they're, they're a Cornish cross breed, and we raise these chickens. You try to get them to weigh as much as you can. I, I mean, I vividly remember this, and you sell them at the auction. Well, one year, my sister, once she realized where these chickens were going, she she bought them and brought them back. And that was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was really a, a powerful, a powerful thing. It still is, uh, you know, very powerful for me today. And so in 1995, she decided to organize this animal rights week. And I, you know, I kind of brushed it off. I didn't think too much about it. I was going to fast food restaurants, sandwich shops with my best friends every single day at lunch. I was a sophomore in high school. And I told my friends just for this week, out of respect for my older sister, I'm going to become a vegetarian, whatever that is. And, and you know what, Howard, I, I went to, uh, and this is back in an agriculture town of Corvallis, Oregon, Oregon State University town in the mid nineties. And I, I went to this event. It was every day at school during lunch breaks and, and other periods where there were speakers, videos of factory farming and animal testing. There were literature, there was literature to read. And most importantly, there were other people to talk to about important uh, issues and have meaningful discussions. And so it was on December 8th, the very first day of that Animal Rights Week, that I decided to become vegan. And it's uh, I've stuck with it ever since for the, the last couple of decades. And it was really just having that role model in my older sister, Tanya, to help lead by example and, and steer me on that path that you know, other animal lives matter. You know, we're, we're animals. There's many other species of animals. Their lives matter. They have their own interests. They have their own desires. They have their own uh, very strong desire to live a life free of fear, pain, and suffering, just like we do. And as soon as I made that connection as a teenager, I, uh, I embraced it. And sure enough, I was giving presentations about animal rights in high school and getting kicked out of class for having arguments and discussions and being fairly passionate about the subject matter and, uh, and went on from there. Um, I I don't want to pry, but I really am curious about how your parents took this. Yeah. Well, you have to, you have to put this into context. I was at 14. So a year before becoming vegan, I weighed 89 pounds. I still have this on my, you know, my medical sheet. When you check in for eighth grade, I was, uh, I think five, I don't know five foot one or something like that. Eighty nine pounds. I was very. I was just a small kid, even though I, I ate lots of bacon and other animal based foods, and I grew up on a farm and all this. I wasn't a very big guy. Uh, I, I wasn't very tall, and I wasn't very heavy. And so, coming from a background of farming, I, I think this was a concern of my parents that, you know, you're already pretty small anyway. If you stop eating animal foods, this is going to be problematic and you're, you're going to have some issues. So, you know, it wasn't until uh, near, when I was nearly 16 that I became vegan. At this point, I was 120 pounds, still pretty small though as a, as a five-sport athlete in high school. And, you know, my, my parents weren't necessarily big fans of this change. I think they were, like most parents, I think they were just worried and concerned that maybe this was a bad health decision and this wasn't such a great idea. I mean, after all, my father's a world expert and a professor and writes all these textbooks. He knows quite a bit about human and animal nutrition and, and, and things of this nature. So I think my parents assumed it was a little bit of a phase and uh, and it wouldn't last long, and they and they were a little bit concerned. But the funny thing is, I think it's worth mentioning. My older sister became vegan before me, so it wasn't just me. Uh, and then there was me, 
And my youngest brother, Clark, who's four years younger, uh, became vegetarian at age 11 right away just because he did everything that I did. And so now <laughs> here are my agriculture parents with, uh, with three vegetarian slash vegan kids and then one cowboy farmer and my brother, Ryan. So uh, here they were, 75% of their kids uh, went away from the, you know, their background and uh, their area of interest and their upbringing to do something uh, completely different and unheard of in their, in their industry and in their culture. Wow. And aside from the concerns about your health, were they kind of cool about you having a different outlook on life? And it, it sounds like from getting kicked out of classes that you were pretty strident and passionate. Did, did they take it personally at all? You know, I think they probably did a little bit because I was very outspoken. Uh, I mean, you, you can tell, I think, a little bit of my edge in my writing style, even in this book, Shred It, uh, a couple decades after I first became vegan. And I am, by nature, fairly passionate about what I believe in at that time, whatever that is. If it's a certain sport, if it's a outlook on life, if it's a dietary choice or, or uh, something that really tugs at my heart, that's what I'm passionate about. And so, yeah, I used to speak out uh, and, and argue with my parents about even the way that they chose to raise me. You know, I mean, I, I, I write about this in my first book, Vegan Bodybuilding, that I, you know, I was a little bit probably too rough around the edges. You know, I used to criticize my parents for uh, almost failing as parents to teaching me to eat meat at such a young age and, and all this stuff that I, that I don't think was really productive, but I was 15 years old and I was really uh, angry and uh, upset about what was happening around around the world and around me. And of course, I naturally blamed my parents because that's, that's uh, where I had to point my energy. And I, and I actually write about this in my first book where I even took a, I remember this as a kid, uh, 15, I took a $50 bill, which was a lot for me at the time, and I burned it because I thought that money was bad if it went toward animal cruelty. And that's where so much money and, and marketing and advertising is spent on producing, marketing, harvesting animals for food. I, I, I even did these type of drastic things back then because I was just so passionate about it and trying to make some statements. And so obviously that didn't go over super well with my parents. Uh, so, 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 you know, that's how I started. But to be honest, Howard, it, it didn't last very, that kind of edge or that attitude didn't last very long. Uh, within a couple of years, I was, I realized that the absolute benefit of leading by positive example, and I organized the animal rights week at my high school when I was a senior, uh, I, I interviewed people on camera, I gave presentations, I passed out literature, I, I did all that kind of stuff. And I continued to do that for the next 20 years just to lead by example in a positive way, learning from some of those initial mistakes I made when trying to promote peace and compassion by using aggressiveness and anger and frustration. It didn't really add up. <laughs> That's a great story. It's, your, your story of your, your sister kind of reminds me of like Charlotte's Web a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, she's, she's incredible. You know, she's, Still vegan today, 20-something years, vegan lifestyle, uh, a big supporter of me and a great role model. Just got her PhD in soil microbiology, really smart, intelligent woman. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better role model. And some of those things that she did, it, those, those, it's those actions, you know, those stories that just stick with you. And they really, they really resonate. I even get, you know, it even like affects me even emotionally today, when I share those stories on stage, giving presentations around the world, I have to pause for a moment because it, you know, it, uh, it had such a profound impact on me. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm imagining probably a lot of kids who grow up on farms, taking care of animals, naming them, doing the 4-H thing, would at some point develop those kind of feelings and, uh, and inclinations, but Maybe they're not, they're not supported, they don't have an older sister, or they get you know, ridiculed for, for being sissies, or their parents really push hard on them. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about, you know, is, is there sort of this, this upswelling of compassion in farm kids that, that generally gets squashed? Or were you, were you, you're, you and your siblings kind of unique? 
No, I, th- I think that's absolutely a valid point and argument and definitely worth discussion. And here's why. Uh, I actually, in a number of ways, I like, I like 4-H because it's not just about animals. I mean, 4-H has art and public speaking and um, poetry, writing, all kinds of things. It's not just animals. And I learned a tremendous amount from 4-H as far as leadership and public speaking, which is what I do now. I mean, that's my career now. I learned that through 4-H. I was a 4-H uh, summer camp counselor, which was for five or six years, one of the best times of my life, no question about it. But here's the thing. So I, I, I want to preface that by saying I don't, I don't think 4-H is inherently evil or anything like that. And I think a lot of people who are unfamiliar with it, maybe a kid from the city just heard about it from some animal rights presenter, um, just paints it with a, a very negative picture. But in 4-H, you, in animal 4-H, you are really taught and encouraged to, to, to connect with animals on such a uh, – such a deep level. And of course you, you name them and you have them by name, you call them by name and they're very tame and you, uh, they follow you around and, and all this. But, but at least from my experience, you're taught that that's just part of the system that you, it, it's part of the system that you get them as tame as possible or as heavy as possible or as obedient as possible. And it's just a natural progression to take them to the auction. That's, I mean, you're a kid, you're, you're, you're there to raise this animal and send it off, collect ribbons and money and start over the next year. And so people, kids are in inherently quite compassionate towards their farm animals. I mean, you would be so amazed the amount of care and concern that farm kids have for their, their close pets. It would be, be them goats or sheep or, or hogs, uh, beef cattle, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the, these kids are very compassionate towards these animals, and it's just it's just that it's embedded in them that it's part of the system that you follow these steps. It, it's just you you follow step A, B, C, D, and then you start over. And there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. And I think there probably are a lot of children who are sad when the day comes that they have to separate with an animal that they spent three or four years training and becoming friends with and and building a relationship with, but they understand that that's part of the 4-H program and that you start anew with the, with the next animal uh, the next year. And that, and then you take it almost like a, a high school duration. For another four years, you work with this animal until it's time to start with a new one. So um, I, I think people want to be – they do care a lot, and they take great care as far as medical issues, health, uh, the physical – just conditions, physical fitness of the animals they work with. They do care a lot. It's just that they're, they're just taught that that's part of the system and that you move on. And uh, when you pause for a moment and reflect on it and look differently and look at the animals differently, I think that's when you come to the conclusion that I did and my, my sister did and that, a few, that, that others naturally do as well. But it does take that just thinking differently, I think. In your speaking career today, do you uh, come across like adults who maybe are farmers or were farmers earlier in their lives and and they faced that sadness and somehow kind of buried it? Because it seems like it's the sort of thing, if you really think about it, would break your heart. But, yeah. you know, you kind of like, you know, man up, right? And right. I wonder, I wonder what kind of feedback you've gotten from others who, who hear your words now and maybe it it's, um, you know, disturbs some memory that they had buried. Well, I'll tell you a really brief story. It was one of the most uh, shocking, I guess, I would say, that I've come across during my speaking tour. Uh, I'll leave the individual unnamed, uh, but I was out in Boston and I was doing my thing, speaking tour and exhibiting at the Boston Vegetarian Food Festival. It was probably about five years ago. And I was really surprised to see one of the biggest 4-H farming families from my community growing up out in Corvallis, Oregon. One of these members was out here attending the, the, the festival. And I was kind of friends with them in high school. We were both on the same track and field team. I was, you know, we were just more acquaintances. And I thought he was just dropping by because it's 3,000 miles away and we were teammates years ago. We'll say hi. Well, as it turns out, he's actually vegan now, 
and, uh, you know, compassionately so. And we've met up numerous times since then when I go back to Boston. And, and I, that was just a really big surprise because he was his family. You know how that is in 4-H. There's this family generation after generation or there's three or four kids in the family and they all are super involved. They win all the, the blue ribbons and they raise multiple different animals and, and all that. This was one of those individuals. And it really surprised me that he came to the same conclusion that my sister and I did after 4-H was his life. I mean, that, that's what his family, that was his, that was his DNA. And here he is uh, living a compassionate vegan lifestyle and sharing stories uh, with me and meeting up for uh, dinner after the festival and, and attending my lecture and all that kind of stuff. So, so that was really a interesting, interesting experience and interaction. And I think there, there are more stories out there like Howard Lyman's, you know, the cattle farmer turned compassionate vegan. I think there are more and more stories out there uh, all the time. And I do bump into some people from time to time on tour who also came from that background. They came from a farming background. They believed in it. They lived it. And they just decided they didn't want to do it anymore. Um, you, know, you know, not a not a tremendous amount, I would say, I, I guess, from my general feedback uh, from my tour experiences. But they're certainly out there. And it's always fairly encouraging to hear those stories of someone like a Dr. Campbell or, or Howard Lyman or, uh, you know, of, of any age who just grew up in farming. That was their that was their lifestyle. And then they can made a complete switch. And I'll tell you, I'm, I just want to interject this in because uh, it's been on my mind a little bit recently. I, I'm fairly optimistic that someday my brother, Ryan, who's a current cattle farmer out in Oregon and he's uh, fairly successful. If you want to put that word within a certain context of farming, uh, he's fairly successful out there. Uh, I'm optimistic that because he does care so much and, and cares for the animals and he he does have deep concern for their health and everything, that maybe someday he will join the rest of his siblings and uh, follow a, a vegan lifestyle or plant-based diet and maybe use his skills and techniques and abilities in farming to do something more like animal sanctuary type work where he can still interact with all the animals, which he loves to do. Uh, I mean – it just seems to me that's what he'd rather do than anything else, be hang out with cows and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, I, and I'm, I've even talked to him a little bit of recently that, uh, you know, when I go back and visit for the holidays, that I think, I think that could be an amazing thing for him to do where he could still spend time with animals and, and, and still make, uh, make a living at it in some way, but not have, to, not have to harvest them and slaughter them and take them to the auction. So uh, I'm optimistic that my brother may be one of those stories down the road. Wow. <laughs> yeah, as, as I hear that, I think about, you know, within within a larger context of just our civilization, that it's it's a challenge to find any way to interact with nature that doesn't involve exploiting it and kind of gr- grinding it under our boots. You know, whether whether it's you want to you want to hang out with cows, then the cost is you've got to sell the cows to to pay for your lifestyle or 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 however else it is um that we want that we want to be in nature um you know how how can how can we figure out how to survive in 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 a sustainable way in equilibrium where we're we don't need to feed our machine on them right and i think a lot of it comes down to something i'm sure you were kind of alluding to is that it's profitability. I mean, how are you going to make a living or how are you going to, so you want to, you want to spend time with specific animals or you want to work in a certain industry, but by keeping these animals healthy and alive, you're not really making any money. How do you make a living? And so I'm a really big fan of, of really identifying what your true passions are and look at them in, in areas uh, outside of, one specific interest and see if there's other ways to, to make a living. I mean, for me, uh, my passion is, uh, health and exercise and traveling and all this stuff, but I also found ways to write some books. And, and as long as the books do well, I can, I can support all my interests of travel and, and supporting other organizations and individuals and, and all this kind of, all these other things. And so I, I think a lot of people are stuck because they don't know 
how to make a, a compassionate living profitable, I guess, in, in a way that sustains them. And so there's a lot of well-meaning people, I believe, maybe even my brother, who who probably would like to keep some animals around the house you know, that, that that have that have first names have, have lived there since they were born five years ago and, and have had a long duration there and, and build up a pretty strong relationship, but, but met with the, uh, you know, the crossroads that, well, this animal is actually costing a lot of money, not making any money. It's time to retire her or him and, and send her off. So, um, I think we have to just look into some of our other interests, our other passions, our other, I don't know, um, I don't want to use the word career or something like that, but just find other innovative ways to um, to make things work. I mean, for example, I know farm sanctuaries don't make a tremendous amount of money. They rely on donations a lot of times from celebrities or high earners or whatever the case is, but they're not, they're not making a ton of money. But if there were, in the case with my brother, maybe if there were a way for him to to run a successful operation sanctuary rescue thing where maybe he gets paid to go pick up animals or he gets he lends out his 18 different semi trucks you know he rents those out makes income that way sells some of his farming equipment or again leases it out tractors major combines and other big expensive equipment which then could sustain that kind of um that that kind of environment of more of a sanctuary style where animals live their life there he cares for them and and it's, and it's done. But it takes, again, looking differently at it and saying, what resources do I have? What, what things are of value for other people, other farmers, other entities? And how can I see if these resources will help fund this more compassionate effort? And uh, that's just one way to look at it, I guess. Right. So, so let's, let's segue right into the book. Sure. Because um, because you said, you know, talk about like being passionate about what you're doing and kind of the first third of the book is really different riffs on being passionate. And sure. you, know, you say things like stop lying to at least stop lying to ourselves. Don't be average. What are you passionate about? Be honest with yourself. These are some of the things that I was like squirming as I'm reading because, I you know, like my basic, um, you know, weight loss strategy is not to wear horizontal stripes. And, yeah. you know, and I'm in, I know a ton about health and nutrition and I got a little pudge and, and, you know, how many cycles of, 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 uh, of mental Ram do I spend justifying it as opposed to saying, you know what, if I want it to work out as hard as Robert works out, I would, I this would be a non-issue. So, um, talk, talk a little bit maybe about your, your philosophy on, not being average on so, like why wh- why should we aim for that and and what does that mean? Sure. Well, and, and I like to point out I, I'm just as much of a health and fitness guy as I am an animal rights guy. You know, animal rights is what got me into this whole thing. But as I embraced bodybuilding and went from 120 pounds when I became vegan to 195 pounds and started winning bodybuilding competitions against people who eat meat all day long and started doing well in that in that realm and and all of that, I realized there was something to it. And it was it was simply that I was more consistent, accountable, and transparent than almost anybody I knew. And, and I realized this to be true in academics, in athletics, in my work. I just I found all these different ways to excel. And I and I was thinking, why aren't other people doing it? I mean, why can't people just lose weight? Why can't they just gain muscle. I mean, I had, I had everything stacked against me. I mean, bodybuilding wasn't exactly in the cards for me at a hundred pounds and then become vegan. I mean, it, it had failure written all over it, but I'm, I'm able to, one thing I write about in the book and I'm a really big fan of is as I'm able to connect the dots ahead of time, I just look, I always look two or three steps ahead or, or more. And I realize if this is something that matters to me, no matter what it is, work, relationship, athletics, academics, if this matters to me, I know, I know I have to do point A, B, C, D in order to get to E. I can't just get there. I can't hope for it. I can't wear stripes in a certain direction on my shirt. I can't say, well, I'm going to eat this today. And, oh, you know, I'm traveling today. I don't feel like exercising. I, I simply understood the compounding effect early on that that our actions today impact our outcome tomorrow. 
And this is very, very true. And I argue in a lot of my recent talks and, and in my book that many of us, even if we have very specific goals in, in areas of health and fitness, may spend four out of seven days a week working against ourselves because the weekends are there, Fridays are there, birthdays, anniversaries, parties, travel days, days we're sick or don't feel like it, we're out of town. We just, we give ourselves a pass. And what happens is I find that we might be giving ourselves a pass 200 out of 365 days a year. And how is, how is that going to help us get anywhere? I mean, do you want to, Howard, do you want to study, um, I don't know, study Japanese once a month or once every three weeks and then be able to believe that you can speak fluently when you go visit Tokyo? I mean, these are the things that I think about. If you really want a specific act, outcome, you have to go through the actions to get there or else, or else you're just guessing and you're just hoping and you just think that maybe will happen. And I do start, I, I deliberately start the first third of the book that way because no offense, Howard, I, actually, I, don't, I, don't care. <laughs> I don't care how much you know or anyone else knows about health and nutrition and fitness. It doesn't really matter unless we apply it. And that's what I really argue in the book is that we can know a whole lot. We can study, we can learn, we can get great degrees, we can do all these things. But until we apply that knowledge and allow it to take place physically, uh, mentally, emotionally, have it, allow it to have an impact on our, a real impact, a tangible, measurable impact on our health and fitness, then we haven't really done very much. And, 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 that's, and that's the thing I want to hit home because you saw in the book, January 17th, the most common day people give up on the New Year's resolutions. I mean, they gave it two, two and a half weeks and, and that was enough and, and decided that, you know what? Didn't work out for me. I'll give it a go next year. And we wait. The next year comes around. We give it another 15 to 17 days and say, you know what? It's just not in the cards for me. Let's wait till next year. And, and the cycle just continues. And for many of us, it, that may encompass our entire lives. And we may never, ever lose weight. Or we may never feel better. We may never have more energy. We may never achieve uh, a certain level of longevity or, or fitness success or even just improving health conditions that we, we wanted because we know it will make our life better. Uh, for many of us, we may never, ever see those days. And it's simply because we said, you know what? I have 1,440 minutes every day to take action, but I felt like checking Facebook notifications was more important and, um, or, or watching the same movie for the 37th time was more important than going out and exercising for 30 minutes or an hour. So, so that's where I, I think is, uh, the most important part of this new book is those questions that I ask readers to ask themselves. You know, what does it really mean to you? Because if you can find deep meaning in your pursuit, uh, I guarantee you'll be more likely to do it than not do it. And that's the way to get to success is by doing. Right. So, what, so what do you think stops people from, from committing to these goals and taking action? It, so, it sounds like you, you from a very early age just knew how to do this, how to focus, how to future pace, how to set, you know, A, B, C, D to get to E. Um, I don't, no, most people I know aren't like that. Um, what, what do you see in people that, that really gets in their way? Well, I think you're right. Not everybody is like that. And I don't know exactly where it came from, from my parents, from my upbringing, from just, uh, observation at a, at a young age. I mean, I knew if I wanted to be the fastest runner in the school, which was one of my goals, which I achieved every year, even in a very competitive environment, I, I knew I had to practice. I knew I had to push myself. I knew I had to better myself. And I'm a big fan of consistent streaks and seeing how that adaptation impacts the overall outcome. And so, uh, I, I don't know where I figured it out, but I, but I did figure it out. And I think what, hold some people back is, you know, a lot of it is, a lot of it is fear. I think, I mean, it's, it's fear and fear means lots of things. I mean, even fear of the hard work, uh, things don't really come easy. Exercise isn't a lot of fun for a lot of people because it takes work. It hurts a little bit. It makes me sweat, makes my, my muscles sore the next day. Uh, I'm out of breath. Uh, these are things that, that happen. I mean, I mean, why do we ever slow down when we run? I mean, it's, it's, simply because of fear or, or pain. And usually it's the fear of the pain. Well, if I keep running to this pace, 
man, it's really going to hurt. My lungs are going to hurt. My heart's going to hurt. My legs are going to be in a lot of pain. Well, you don't have to think that way. You can just go until it actually really happens and it causes you to slow down. And, and when you look at it with that approach and actually test it out, boy, you can run a lot faster and a lot further than you ever imagined if you just don't let fear stop you. So I, I think I think fear is a big part of it. Big part of it. I also think we just get uh, accustomed to uh, to doing something. We just we get comfortable with uh, spending our day doing specific things, and it becomes routine. It becomes normal. Becomes very comfortable. And if you step outside that comfort zone, things become more challenging because there's lots of unknown. Um, we, we don't know what's going to happen with our increased effort in whatever this is, a new skill, a new um, job, a new language learning course, a new exercise program. Um, we're, we're pretty content to just where we are now because that's a happy place where we're comfortable and, and, and we don't have to worry and feel nervous or anxious. So, you know, I also think that, and this is really true, I think a lot of us don't really know what we're passionate about. You know, we, we just, things are okay or things are fun. We like things. Um, but we don't really love things. We don't, we're not really passionate about things. I, I, I mentioned that in the book that, it, I mean, if you're, if you're passionate about skiing, well, what are you doing living in, living in the desert? You know, I mean, you would pack up, you would resign from whatever work you're doing and you would go out to the mountains if you really loved it. If it's, if it's something you like, then yeah, it's fine. Go up there a couple of times a year. Fair enough. But if you're really passionate about it, you will, you'll do what it takes to make it happen. And I think we're missing that for whatever reason. I think we just miss that a lot in today's society. And if we can find that for whatever that is for each one of us, whatever that passion is, I think we'll be so much more likely to be successful because we'll want to do it because the easiest thing in the world is to give up and to quit. And, and that's often a result of uh, just not being so into that event. I mean, in love with that exercise or in love with that or passionate about that activity, uh, because if we were, we would we would certainly find a way to do it. I'm I'm wondering whether part of your your story is that you discovered a a larger goal for your life at a very early age, and at the age of fifteen, you discovered that you wanted to be an ambassador for com a compassionate lifestyle, and. You know, the, and and that you weren't necessarily encouraged to do that. That, you, that you you kind of had to figure out who you were and what was important to you, as opposed to a lot of us in society growing up, being told who we are, what's important, what we should like, who we should be, and we we kind of stay addicted to that instead of really looking courageously at like what makes me tick. Right. I never. I never liked, as I'm sure you can imagine, um, with some of my re rebellious uh, childhood days, I never liked being told what to do or put into a corner that I had to do this. I never wanted, and no offense to anyone who does uh, this, I never wanted to, to work a nine-to-five job. I never, I never wanted to be managed or micromanaged. I wanted to – I always wanted to be some sort of a leader. And I'll tell you – from as early as I can remember, I was publishing books when I was in third grade, uh, laminated, uh, spiral bound. I wrote them. I illustrated them. I knew I was going to be a writer. I mean, I knew. And it took steps, but I took those steps. I mean, I had a one-on-one -on -one writing coach when I was in high school. I wrote a 100-page book when I was 17 years old. I knew eventually I was going to be an author, uh, even when I was eight years old because that was my passion and I, I, I knew I was fairly good at it and I knew what direction I wanted to go. Yeah, it took me a couple of decades to get it done, but I put those, I connected all those dots all along the way by hiring the writing coach, by taking courses, by, um, by making sure that I had a story to tell. And for me to have a, a, a powerful story to tell, I knew I had to be an ambassador as the word you use. I knew I had to be a leader. I knew that if I could be a skinny farm kid and, and turn that into becoming a champion vegan bodybuilder just years later, uh, that was a compelling story that could probably save a tremendous amount of lives, which was something that was very important to me and still is today. I knew that it could also help a lot of other people who, uh, who didn't have 
resources like the internet in the nineties and, and in the, in the mid or mid to early nineties and, uh, and, and just needed other role models who were doing it. And so, uh, I knew if I could tell a story and do things my own way on my own terms, that it, it might be helpful for, for other people and, and make a difference. So, um, so yeah, I've always kind of marched to a, uh, what it, what's the expression in a beat of a different drum or something like that. Uh, but I think that's how you, I think it's how you stand out. I think it's how you make things happen by just not, not going with normalcy or what's, uh, what's presented to you, but doing what you really want to do and just working hard at it until it happens. I think, I think that's really key is what you said about like, I knew that this was going to happen. Like what, whatever we really have faith in, whatever we really believe is our default future, we're naturally going to take the steps towards that default future. So if I'm like, oh, I really want to be in great shape, but you know what, deep in my heart, I kind of know that I'm never going to be, that's, that's going to sabotage everything sooner or later. So 120 pound skinny farm kid goes, grows to be 195 pound bodybuilder, wins all these championships, uh, becomes world famous, influences two, now two new generations of, of vegan bodybuilders. So help, help the people who are listening believe that they could do something like that. And I, I know most people are not going to want to become bodybuilders, but certainly almost everyone wants to look better, be stronger, be more fit. Can, you know, convince people that they can do it too. What would, what would you say to someone who's like, you know, who's been a lifetime member of the January 17 club? Yeah, well, here's a perfect example. And it's one of my, uh, I hesitated to share this story in the book, but I shared it anyway. And I'll be really, I'll just do a brief summary here. But it's my running story in the book that, so here's, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a bodybuilding career for a decade and, until it just I just started to lose enthusiasm for it, which is natural. We, we, we often change our interests. I mean, it's a very normal thing to happen. And so bodybuilding became less interesting to me, but I still like the pursuit of a challenge. And so after a decade of bodybuilding, which, which essentially equates to a decade of not running at all, because running doesn't support bodybuilding very well, especially endurance running, I decided to start running again. I mean, I hadn't done since my uh, high school days and a year or two after high school. And so I was starting from scratch. Um, you know, it, I could only run four or five miles at a time, not a very fast pace. It was very sore and fatigued and tired afterwards. But I, I set a specific goal to, uh, to do something, to achieve something. And I was planning to run this three hour timed race. And so I trained for it. And I didn't make excuses. I didn't I didn't let other things get in my way or maybe I'm not good enough or this is going to hurt a lot. This is, you know, I'm not built for this. I'm too heavy. I'm 40 pounds heavier than all the other skinny runners out there. But I, I believe that I could do it. I pursued it anyway. And long story short, as it turns out, after about four, three or four months of training, I showed up at this three-hour timed race and uh, eventually won the race and set a new course record that I believe still stands today. It covered uh, almost a marathon distance. Uh, 22 and a half miles during this time on a, uh, during this three hours on a very windy turning, uh, mulch trail, uh, course in the woods. And that was just another example of, I knew I could perform well. I didn't know exactly how it would turn out, but I, I created an agenda. I created a plan. I had no business doing it. I had no business winning that race. It's kind of silly that I did. But uh, but I think the work ethic and the drive that compelled me to get up every day and go for a run and run hard and time myself and use the stopwatch as I sprinted, even when no one's around, it's just me keeping my own self accountable. Uh, that that led to some great results, and it gave me another great story to share in the book and get and tell in, in presentations, which gets people inspired and motivated. And has nothing to do with bodybuilding, and has nothing to do with. Uh, with anything other than just personal attainment for something that was important to me at the time. So here's, here's a nutshell. Here's, here's my advice to all the January 17th people is to find out what you really want to do. I mean, not just to look better or feel better. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, what does, what does look better mean? And, and why is there value attached to it or, or, meaningful reasons that connect to it and what does feel better really mean and what does 
achievement really mean? Or what does uh, improve fitness, what does that equate to? Why is that important in your life? Uh, give it context and give it true, deep, meaningful context. When you do that, you actually have something worth pursuing then. It, it matters to you. And, and then really look at where you want to be a, a, a few steps ahead, maybe six months from now, a year from now, five years from now. What, were, what will your life look like and how will these action steps along the way help you get there and help make this a reality? And then simply just create those action steps. So if you want to lose weight, you have to understand how to do it. You, know, you have to understand caloric intake and expenditure and basal metabolic rate and, and uh, whole foods and refined foods and caloric density and nutrient density. But if you're passionate about it, you'll look into that stuff. You'll read about it in my book or somebody else's book, and you'll be able to just simply apply these steps. And then January 17th doesn't have to roll around. You'll just find your compelling reasons to do something that you're pursuing day in and day out. And uh, you know, then you'll come to a result that's a quote from one of my friends, Brendan Brazier, who I, I think has been on your show, uh, where he says um, – you know, it's easier for me to train than it is to not train because I've been doing it for so long that it's embedded in me that it's, I mean, think about that for a minute. It's easier for me to work hard pursuing meaningful goals than it is to not. I mean, that's really what he's saying. It's, it's easier for me to train and work really hard at it than it is for me to hold back and sit and stay home. And, and that I think is just, is so powerful. And I, I think anybody can get to that point. If we're, if we're just willing to qualify these reasons why we want to do it and then quantify our effort and put ourselves in a position to be successful. So I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, you talk to some extent about willpower and really being willing to do it. But for, for a lot of people, willpower is, you know, a very non-renewable or it's a renewable resource, but it, it doesn't last very long. As you go about things, these days, how much of it is willpower and how much of it is getting to a place where willpower becomes less important? Well, I think it depends on the context of the, each individual pursuit. I mean, some things are more meaningful than others. Um, bodybuilding isn't quite as meaningful for me right now, but lifting weights for the fun of it to stay healthy, happy, and fit and to represent myself well on tour and all these uh, types of things is more meaningful. So I don't have a hardcore bodybuilding approach, but I have an approach that is sufficient for what my current pursuit is. And so I think willpower or whatever name you give to actively pursuing your passion gets you started. And the moment you start to realize how effective it is and how it works and how it leads to real results, uh, the more you want to apply that the next time around which therefore uh, time and time again of using the same approach makes it kind of like second nature. So I don't have to just look deep inside and drum up this heartfelt passion for, uh, for eating whole foods versus refined foods or eat or running versus lifting weights or using free weights versus machines because it's, it's already there. It's built in. I've had the willpower and the drive for decades that now it just carries over into whatever it is that's, that's next. If I'm going to take on a new academic uh, challenge, take a new course, uh, enroll in a specific program, whatever, I'm going to go about it the same way I would if I'm going to say, you know what, this is day one of me making a comeback to bodybuilding or this is day one of me pursuing running for the first time in a decade. I'm going to go into it with enthusiasm, with hard work, with drive, with all that stuff because it's already built in. So my point is the more you apply this willpower and uh, compelling drive for each thing that you pursue, the more it just it's just there the next time around. And you don't have to just dig deep to look for it and do some soul searching, turn on music, meditate out in the woods, uh, have a conversation with friends, sit in the steam room and, you know, allow your mind to wander. It's just it's, it's built in. It's there. Likewise, and this is very important, if we don't do that, if we don't find that willpower, if we don't find that drive and passion, you know what? We, we will, with each new pursuit, we will take the same apathetic, 
approach of uh, just a lackluster effort. It's probably not going to work out. It didn't work out last time. Um, I'd rather be comfortable and not push myself too far outside my comfort zone. You know, uh, sports centers on, I'm a big fan of television. I'm just going to, I'm going to, that's what I want to do. And I, and I think that's very important because if we do that, if we have this lackluster approach time and time again, that makes it that much harder to, to find willpower and enthusiasm to pursue something that, that really matters. So the more we do it, the more we try really hard and believe in what we're doing and believe in ourselves, the more it's there for any new opportunity that arises. Great. Great. Um, so you talk, you have a formula. Um, we talk about transparency and accountability. Um, what, what do you mean by each of those? Well, what I mean by that is, so Howard, you tell me that, um, you know, you eat a healthy diet, you, you eat lots of greens or fruits and vegetables, um, you pretty active. Um, I'm not really interested in what you tell me. I, I, I want you to show me <laughs> I, I, really. People pat them, hey, I'm vegan, uh, I ate a salad today, pat myself on the back. Or, you know, I had a great workout today. Well, what about yesterday? Hey, you know, I'd rather not talk about it. What about the day before? Come on, ease up off my back, <laughs> you know? I'm, we're talking about today's workout. Well, working out two out of seven days, you know, if your goal is improve fitness, it's probably not going to be super productive or super helpful. Or uh, congratulating ourselves for eating a salad when we – had refined junk food for the 85% of our other calories, again, it's not a, a big call for victory or celebration, yet we're doing it. And so what I mean by transparency is if you ate a salad, uh, tell me about that salad. Was it covered in oil, which now makes it a 70% fatty food, maybe fattier than a burger or pizza, or was the salad um, – you know, had lots of, did it have lots of different greens and vegetables, nuts, seeds, whatever uh, – Here's the bottom line. What, what I mean by that is that most of us only remember the things we want to remember, the, the times we ate healthy, um, healthy foods, the times we exercised, the times we took our dog for a walk, the times we called home, because we feel bad. We feel bad when we eat poorly, when we skip workouts, when we don't take our dog out as often as we should, when we only call home every three months thinking that's all the time. And we, we feel bad about these things. And so we naturally only remember the things we want to remember. And so that's problematic because it, that's not accurate. That doesn't give us a true accountable assessment of what's going on day in and day out. And I give classic examples in my book, which I think is, is just perfectly designed to help people with these scenarios to, to understand it, where there's people that perhaps based on their age, height, weight, gender, and activity level, in order for them to lose weight, they should be eating maybe 2,000 calories from whole foods per day, again, based on the specific metrics of this individual. But that individual, when finally asked to be transparent and document what they're eating every day and what they're exercising and do this for a couple of weeks, reveals that they're eating 3,200 calories a, a day, 1,200 calories in excess hold on actually I have a computer uh, calculator here 1200 in excess times 365 whoops that's 360 hold on 1200 times 365 that's 438,000 extra extra calories um, a year you know uh, half a million extra calories a year that we're not accounting for because we don't we don't think about it so it, it's not what we it's not what we tell ourselves that we're doing. It's what, it's what we're really doing that matters. And so, uh, likewise, I was a skinny kid, struggled my first year in bodybuilding. And, uh, it wasn't until later that I realized why. And it was a classic scenario. Like I gave in the book where based on, again, those individual metrics unique to us on what we're really doing, um, I should have been consuming something like 4,000 calories a day because I was incredibly active five sport athlete. And I was, I was eating probably about 2,500 calories a day. I didn't gain any, any weight. Uh, the very next year, uh, I ate about 5,000 calories a day, um, gained 19 pounds in 12 weeks, 30 pounds that year, uh, transformed into a bodybuilder, put on another 10 pounds the next year, another 10 pounds after that reaching almost 200. Again, it was, it was because of transparency and accountability. That's what I mean. I mean, I mean, what are you actually really doing? Because that's your, your body responds to what you're doing, not to what you're 
mind justification thinks that you're doing. So, so it turns so, out that, that, that all of us do follow the laws of nature, <laughs> even, yeah. though, even though we think we're, we're just sort of unhappy anomalies, that if I could only do what these we, other, if I only had their genetic disposition, that I'd be skinny too. Exactly. We think we're, we think we're an exception to something and we don't, and we, and also we discredit some people who work incredibly hard and, and we do say things, oh, it's their genetics and genetics do play a role. Don't get me wrong. But I think anytime we make it excuses, that's not in our favor. I mean, you can either acknowledge someone for their hard work or acknowledge them for their genetics or give them credit for whatever. The, the moment we try to compare ourselves or make excuses, the moment we're, we're deemed for a big struggle because we feel like, man, I'm never going to get there because they have this advantage. So why bother? So um, I'm a, that's what I mean by transparency and accountability. You know, what are you really doing and how can you change it to fit where your specific goals are? Great. Great. So a lot of the book is really specific um, training plans. Um, with, with photographs of, of workouts, got lots of recipes, you know, this, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't really want to have this interview kind of being about the content in the book, but more, more of the context. But if people really want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm already starting to, uh, to, to incorporate some of the things that I've been reading in preparation of this interview that are going to help me transform my results. So I strongly recommend that if losing fat and getting ripped, getting shredded, as you say, is something that folks are interested in, that this is this book is a great resource. Um, I wanted to ask one more thing before we have to jump off, which is the, uh, you know, the big vegan question, and especially the vegan bodybuilding or athlete question is protein. And you write that you T- did a 180 on protein after taking the Campbell Foundation course, uh, course yeah. started by T. Colin Campbell, and hanging out with him and watching Forks Over Knives. What uh, what did you discover about protein from him that, that changed what you did? What did you change, and what results did you see? Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because it's something that will no doubt be either controversial or uh, a point of interest for a lot of people because for those who read my first book and it you know it did fairly well moved 20,000 copies or so and and so I know a new a number of people have read it I was a big fan of protein I mean I was I was 5,000 calories and putting peanut butter on everything and a lot of supplements and shakes and things like that and yeah it was when I took the Dr. T. Colin Campbell plant-based nutrition course through Cornell University uh, and my time working with Forks Over Knives. I actually worked with them in their office and having discussions with them on a daily basis. It just made me look at food and nutrition differently. And I realized that, I think I realized things that I already knew. I mean, things like, just to parallel this to my early days in 4-H too, I think I knew the raising animals and becoming so close with them and then take him to the auction. I, I think I knew that was a bad idea or wasn't nice. And I, I think I knew that I, I didn't really need to eat 300 grams of protein a day. I, th- I think I just did it because that's what the popular bodybuilding culture did. I wanted to be in the same area with Jay Cutler and Ronnie Coleman and all these the top bodybuilders in the world. And I wanted to be the, basically the, the Mr. Olympia of the vegan bodybuilding world. You know, I mean, I wanted to live that lifestyle and represent veganism and bodybuilding and therefore I was going to do everything that these guys did but just substitute out the the the, the animal based foods for plant based foods. So I packed on the protein, packed on the calories and all this. But it wasn't until like that Cornell program I learned about caloric density and nutrient density and realized that I didn't have to do that. Um, and I was sitting here last night, got back from the gym and you know I train legs, which is a tough, you know, big muscle group. And I was eating potatoes after the workout, oranges, raspberries. And I I found myself sitting there with my plate, uh, really reflecting back on just a few years ago where if I had finished a tough workout, I would have been pounding protein shakes. I would go to the store and literally, I mean, absolutely no exaggeration, go find packages of flavored tofu, like deli slices ripped the plastic open with my teeth and I didn't pull the slices off. I just ate it like it was a burger. I would eat just packages of this stuff because 
I real I realized then that I needed I really needed all that protein, and now I I, I actually I honestly Howard I don't even crave it. I mean I come back from a tough workout. I'm still strong. I'm still in good shape. Still very active. And I actually I don't I don't want that stuff. I just I just want to eat real food. You know I want to eat plant based whole foods. And so I will eat sweet potatoes and avocado and brown rice and quinoa and leafy greens and tons of fruit. I mean, I came back from workout the day before. I've been, I've, tried, I've had 10 workouts in the last eight days. I've been hitting it pretty hard. And I was eating blueberries and, and raspberries and <laughs> tangerines and bananas and all this stuff. And it seems really wimpy. I mean, it seems silly. But again, I also know how much nutrition is in those foods. And I know that our protein, our protein requirements are so low, you know, five to 10% of our calories maybe closer to 10 to 15 or 10 to 12% if we're just an incredibly hardcore athlete, football player, weightlifter, uh, boxer, bodybuilder, but that the protein intake is so low and it's so overly consumed by uh, people in our society. And the fact that we had this mentality that more is better, that I'm starting to learn that's not necessarily the case. In fact, more could be quite harmful actually. And I mentioned all these different adverse health implications from uh, damage to kidneys and liver, formation of and passing of kidney stones, excess uh, body fat, excess uh, caloric intake, um, increased stress on digestion, uh, at processing, digesting food, uh, feeling lethargic and tired, and um, in general, adding more body weight. Uh, I mean, there's just, the list goes on and on that Maybe maybe a whole lot of protein isn't isn't such a wonderful idea after all. And and it took people like Dr. Campbell and Brian Wendell and the Forks Over Knives community to really hammer that home. And so I am totally content these days with a low protein, low fat, high carbohydrate, whole plant food diet. And that's what I do, and that's what I enjoy, and that's what supports my uh, athletic endeavors, including that record-setting race performance a couple years ago, and including you would go look on Facebook, um, Twitter. I'm very transparent, post updated photos from my tour. I'm in good shape, feel strong, and I think this this new diet and lifestyle approach supports that. Terrific. Terrific. So for folks who want to um, find out more and follow you and you know, get inspired and instructed by by your experience. You have the, the two books, right? The yeah. latest one is Shred It. First one was was vegan bodybuilding Ve- and weightlifting. Vegan bodybuilding and fitness. And fitness. Yeah. Um, and how can people follow you on uh, Twitter? F- follow you on face? Fan you on Facebook? And uh, you know, stay in touch and you know, website. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Howard. Well, veganbodybuilding.com is the site I've been running for about 13 years now. So veganbodybuilding.com, just look for that or search Vegan Bodybuilding and Fitness. That's my company brand name. Uh, Robert Cheek with an E on the end uh, is uh, what I use for Twitter, Facebook, all over the place. So that, that's what I use so people can find me fairly easily. And I do highly recommend people check out the new book, not the old book, because I've had like a 180 change on so many different ideas um, that I think this new book, Shred It, which I've worked on for the past two years and endorsed by Dr. Esselstyn and Dr. Campbell and Rich Roll and uh, Rip Esselstyn, Kathy Freston, a long list of people. I think that's the it's just one of the best resources I know of right now because I put so much work into it, the same passionate approach I put into pursuing and achieving goals that I honestly think it's going to help a lot of people believe in themselves, set attainable goals, and truly once and for all understand how to really burn fat, how to really build muscle, and how to have a whole lot of fun uh, pursuing what we really care about. Awesome. That's one, that's one of the great um, benefits of having been wrong and learning that you're right is that you get to write a new book and people have to buy it. <laughs> And I think honestly, admitting and acknowledging uh, where I had some flawed ideas, or at least at the time where where now I believe these new ideas are so much better and superior, and I and I explain why I believe that's the case. And I think just being honest and about my own learning process uh, is is valuable and, and worthwhile, and people can understand my thought process by reading this new book and. And they can either agree with me or disagree with me, but at least I'm transparently sharing that thought process of how I feel like I've grown. Awesome. 
Robert Cheek, thank you so much. It's been so, first of all, it was really inspiring to read this book. And I did, I did go get slapped around a little bit by it, but it was all to the good. Uh, <laughs> awesome, right? It's you're 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 like the you know, the, the tough trainer that I would uh, I would pay to make me do the things I don't really feel like doing. But um, this conversation has been very inspiring and illuminating, and I hope everyone listening will go find you on Facebook and Twitter and veganbodybuilding.com, and definitely check out Shred It if you would like to have a body that. Uh, can perform in all the ways you want it to. So Robert, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Howard. I really appreciate the opportunity. And this is my first uh, interview with the new book. It's only been out for a month. So thanks for being the first one. And thanks for having me on. I sincerely appreciate it. And I thank everyone for listening. And I, I hope to meet many of you when I'm out on tour. So thanks again. Awesome. Be well. Thank you. You too. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Robert Cheek. Next week, Keep an eye out for Plant Yourself Podcast 82, which features Susan Levin, Director of Research for the PCRM, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We get into what the research shows, and also I kind of poke at uh, what I suspect some people think of as a weakness of that organization, which is the fact that they are an overtly plant-based slash vegan research organization. And so one of the criticisms is, well, how do we know your objective? How do we know you're not biased? So I ask Susan that and we get into a fascinating conversation about scientific objectivity while carrying out a mission. So I hope you'll join me for that. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>